Hi, everybody, and welcome to this edition of the Taking Control of Your Diabetes podcast. I am one of your hosts, Dr. Jeremy Pettis. I'm joined, as always, by my good friend and colleague, Dr. Steve Edelman. Happy to be here, buddy. Yes. So, um, as always, if you're just turning in, uh, tuning in, Steve and I are both living with type 1 diabetes since we were 15, and we're both endocrinologists. We practice um, and do research at the University of California, San Diego, and the VA. So, this title or the topic of today's episode is, is basically hypoglycemia or low blood sugars. And to be honest, I'm kind of surprised it's taken us this long to come around to this topic because it's such an important one. And, you know, when we talk about why this is an important topic, well, hypoglycemia can be really dangerous and in its worst situations, it can actually cause death. In its most mild situations, it can just make you irritable and hangry and not fun to be around. So we thought we'd kick it off with telling some stories about our own kind of run-ins with hypoglycemia. And, and Steve, do you want to start with that? Sure. You know, we, we, we have, <laughs> I think anybody with type 1, any type 2 on insulin, and some of those on sulfonylureas, we, we all have our stories. And I think it's the number one thing that most people worry about day to day is hypoglycemia all day long. And their family members. Yeah, oh. That's a huge concern. Yeah. yeah. It affects society, affects school, your work, everything. Well, <laughs> as I said, you know, I've had many lows in my day, but I think the one that I remember the most is right here at the TCOID office in San Diego, where I had a bum knee from a bike accident and I decided to take the elevator up one floor. I got in there when no one was looking, so because I was kind of embarrassed, I didn't take the steps. And I pushed the button and make a long story short, the elevator closed and just conked out. The power went out. Then my blood sugar started getting low. And then I didn't have anything in my backpack except a bag of beef jerky. And I was getting lower and lower and sweaty. So and palpitations. I mean, yeah, I got to jump in right there. Please, please. Every time you tell this story, I think about like you could just not design a more like fear provoking situation than a low blood sugar in a trapped elevator. I mean, honestly, I mean, that's everybody's fear with low blood sugars is, yes, it's horrible to get one. But when you're in a situation where you can't get help or treat yourself, you're, you know, in a car stuck on the freeway or whatever it is, but literally an elevator that's not moving just must have been terrifying. Yeah, it did. I, I kept thinking, is this the way I'm going to go after all these years? And I had three empty glucose tab containers from the, when I used them, I didn't fill them up. Yeah, and I, you know, you know me. Uh, a lot of times people accuse me of not having anything to, to take when I get low, but it's something that is a good lesson for everybody. You know, it's Murphy's Law. When, when you least expect something to happen, it may happen. Mm -hmm. So thank God I got out, had to call emergency services, and then I ate everything in our snack room. And my blood sugar, I think, went to 475. Which our snack room for a diabetes organization is just not a healthy snack room at all. Oh, it's not bad. <laughs> the peanut butter pretzels, you I love I just had some beef jerky, which every morning I roll in at like 8 a.m. and just have like a Slim Jim. Like. <laughs> if you ever squeeze a Slim Jim at the end where it's cut, all this greasy stuff, like, 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 your, like zit stuff in a zit pimple. Oh, anyway, they're small. They're portion control. Well, you know, we're laughing now. Thank God, but that could have gone, you know, horrible. Um, and we actually uh, recreated this whole event where we kind of filmed it and you kind of talked over it. It was, it was done really well. And the title of that uh, session, I think it's called Diabetes Horror Stories in the video vault. I don't know, Eric, do you remember what the name of the title was? Um, but we talk about, you know, situations that happen like this. And um, 
we'll put it in like the the notes of the the podcast where people can find it. But, yes, we will. Um, it was a great one. So, um, I think I you know I'll tell my story. But okay. one of the first things about you know sticking with yours is that I think it's helpful for people to hear that this can happen to the kind of quote unquote best of us. That you and I are both endocrinologists. We have access to the best technologies to the best you know, things to treat low blood sugars when you remember to actually put them in your bag. And so if it can happen to us, it can happen to anybody. And that doesn't mean you walk around just fearful all the time, but you have to be prepared. You have to realize that this, unfortunately, is something that happens with diabetes. And if you do have low blood sugars, it's not your fault. You just have to be prepared. So um, I just say real quickly, Jeremy, yeah. you mentioned it, uh, but even though we have continuous glucose monitors, we have low alert levels, we have the emergency low alert levels of 55, uh, this can still happen. Mm -hmm. And uh, blood sugars that are dropping quickly can uh, surprise people. And we'll talk a little bit later about um, severe hypoglycemia. But yeah, you you have a zillion stories too. I yeah. think you should be accused of using the most regular Coke of any diabetic oh, okay. in this well, country. We didn't, I didn't throw accusations at you. Just... Yeah, you did. You should, I forget, <laughs> should have had glucose tests with me. <laughs> um, well, actually, to complete your story, you've got your knee replaced now just a couple of weeks ago. Not yes. Maybe a month ago now. So you're walking upstairs. You don't have to ever use that elevator again. So that's, you know, good story there. So my, the story I usually tell is the one about where I, when I was on shots, I mixed up um, my, my rapid acting and basal insulin. And this is something that can be very easily done. And it's kind of a long story. So I'll make this very short. I was coming off of a pump and I was going on a, on the back to basal insulin. And sometimes when I do that, I'll do kind of a loading dose of my basal insulin, like twice as much as I would normally take to get my basal insulin kind of going. Um, so I actually was trying to take five, zero 50 units of basal insulin and accidentally took 50 units of rapid-acting insulin. And it took me a long time to realize what I'd done. I ate everything in sight. Um, it was just going low, 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 super low. And finally, thankfully, I had glucagon um, and was able to kind of raise my blood sugars. So that was a crazy story. But the one I wanted to kind of focus on was one that actually just happened a week or two ago. And I think I showed you my CGM when this happened or you were following me. And this is just more kind of everyday diabetes stuff. So I had put on um, a new uh, pump. And sometimes this happens when I feel like I put on a new pump that like the absorption right away doesn't doesn't kick in. And I know this happens to me and not to you. We talk about this a lot. And so I was bolusing, bolusing, bolusing all day long. And the insulin wasn't getting absorbed for some reason. And it came time to go to bed. And when I went to sleep, it just so happened that my sensor failed. And overnight, like my blood sugar or the insulin just started getting absorbed. So I woke up, you know, in the middle of the night, just really confused. And I kind of skipped that step where you could tell that you were low, mm -hmm. you know, where you have like the symptoms. And also, I just didn't know what was going on. So I actually had to do a finger stick and I was like 40, 40, and just started and in the house. I really didn't have much. So kind of like your situation too. It's like Murphy's Law. Um, didn't have glucagon but was able to, you know, drink juice and eat tabs. And it was the first time I can think of in a long time where I was like, that could have got me, you know, kind of like you said. And that's yep. that's scary. Um, yeah, you, then it, it wrecked your whole day. You felt like no, C-R-A-P. Totally. Yeah. You know, and, and I, I just mentioned a patient of mine who um, I kept trying to convince to get glucagon. He says, I've never gotten low. So the next thing I know, a few months later, he's on the freeway. He hears his low... Uh, a CGM alert go off. He's feeling normal. He keeps driving. 
and then he passes out on the freeway, gets into a big crash. Luckily, he didn't hurt himself seriously or anybody else. But I, I think the point I want to make is there's always a first time. Mm-hmm. And that's why people can't be complacent if you've never had right. a serious low before. Yeah. I've had type 1 for 30 years. Nothing's ever happened. Mm-hmm. Well, it you know, it doesn't matter. If, if it happens, you know, you still need to be prepared. So, so the point, again, is not to like these horror stories, but it's just that these things are common. They can happen. Um, and we just need to be prepared about it. So the rest of the podcast, we wanted to just kind of dive into a little bit about what is hypoglycemia? Why do people get it? How do we prevent it, et cetera? So... Starting with why people with type or with diabetes are prone to hypos. And this really is mostly an issue for anybody with diabetes that takes insulin, type 1 or type 2, or type 2s that take some of these pills like sulfonylureas. But insulin is really the main culprit. And I think, first of all, maybe we talk about how people without diabetes avoid hypoglycemia. And really what's going on is that you have the, the beta cells that make insulin, and they can secrete insulin on kind of a second-to-second basis, um, depending on what the blood sugar is. So the blood sugar goes up from, you know, 85 to 86. You know, it can, can secrete a little bit of insulin. And then on the flip side, if the blood sugar starts dipping down, it can shut it off immediately. So as soon as the blood sugars start ticking low, insulin gets shut off. Glucagon kicks in to kind of raise the blood sugars. And this is happening again on a second-to-second basis. Yeah, and I'll just add that... This insulin and glucagon that they both come from the pancreas, Mm -hmm. it goes right into the systemic circulation where it works almost instantaneously. So you imagine us injecting these hormones into our fatty tissue where it takes a long time for them to have an effect. Mm -hmm. And I think that leads to a lot of mismatch between the insulin and the amount of carbohydrates that we eat. And just like when you tried to compensate for your blood sugar going up and then eventually the insulin kicked in. Right. So, you know, Eric's sitting here next to us enjoying his functional uh, pancreas. And so, yeah, again, if his blood sugar, if he hasn't eaten this morning, whatever, uh, his insulin will kind of shut off. Now, compare that to you and I, Steve, that first of all, you know, we have some basal insulin that's usually, you know, if, if you take a shot, that doesn't change throughout the day. But most importantly, if you take a bolus of rapid acting insulin, you know, if you take too much, that can be hanging around four or five hours. It doesn't shut off. So if your blood sugar is going low, there's no kind of ability for the, the body to kind of turn off the insulin. And when that happens, then the glucagon actually doesn't come up also. So you can see that it's just a setup of you have too much insulin and there's no break on that. And the other important part about glucagon is that if you take people with diabetes type 1 and type 2 and make them hypoglycemic, make them their blood sugars low, they just don't secrete glucagon like they normally should. Glucagon just gets all messed up. So you have too much insulin with these slow insulins that we can't shut off. The glucagon that's supposed to kind of be there to protect us isn't there. So no wonder we are predisposed to to have these lows. Yeah, and there's so many other variables that affect our blood sugars throughout the day. You know, it's the timing of the insulin, it's the food you eat, the amount you eat. Then about then we won't even get into the details of exercise because, you know, the intensity, the duration, the timing, and then there's stress and how you react to that. I mean, there are so many variables that can affect the blood sugar. And you're talking about even in a in a controlled clinical trial setting, things are tough to manage. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine that people with diabetes uh, can pull their hair out, basically. Totally. Just trying to keep their blood sugars in range. So 
other things, you know, that kind of go on just to kind of round this out. So glucagon's messed up, um, <laughs> but we do you can secrete adrenaline. This is epinephrine, norepinephrine. That's something that your body usually secretes when your blood sugars get down in the 50, 60 range. And that can help raise your blood sugar. And that's also where a lot of the symptoms come from. You know, the rapid heart rate, the like, you know, sweating. This is like your body just kind of this flight, flight or flight, you know, response that's kicking in to try to raise your blood sugar. So that's the adrenaline response is still there, but it's a lot of the time is not enough to make, you know, your blood sugars kind of come back from a low blood sugar. Yeah. The, in the doctor textbooks and lectures, they talk about these three levels. The first level is what you mentioned, the adrenergic, shaky, weak, sweaty, palpitations. And when you first get diagnosed, and for five to 10 years, you might get those symptoms at 60 or 70. But as the longer you've had diabetes, you may not feel those. And you get into what we call the neuroglycopenic. And that's when you start getting confused, perioral numbness, and you don't have those initial symptoms to warn you. Mm -hmm. um, and then after that, you know, you can pass out and yeah. have a seizure. And um, I think that's, you know... For us, that's when you can tell you're having a bad low. When all of a sudden you, your mouth gets numb, yes. or you get the little floaters in your eyes, that's when your brain is just not getting enough, you know, glucose and the I, nerves. I thought it's when you tell me to take my Adderall. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's either low or ADHD. One of those two. So the, the last thing of like why we're prone to this. So again, insulin doesn't shut off. Glucagon's you know messed up. Um, but every kind of like. I guess a way of saying this is that hypoglycemia begets hypoglycemia. The more hypos you have, your brain kind of resets to what it thinks is, is normal or abnormal. And if you're kind of repeatedly having lows, you know, um, that you can kind of lose your ability to fight back. And that puts you at higher risk of having a severe low. So, you know, we'll talk about ways to, to prevent this, but avoiding hypoglycemia is important so you don't have another kind of bad low, if that makes sense. Yeah, and, you know, if, we, if, if Bill Polonsky was here, uh, we, he would talk about the hypoglycemia fear syndrome. And I know you and I have both had patients where they've had a bad low, and then psychologically they can never even get near to 200. Again, they're typically above that. But I think it's important to say that everybody has their own individual reactions to hypo yeah everyone's different and it and that reaction changes over time and i know they have classes on hypoglycemia awareness yeah. uh, training so there's a lot of things people can do but i think it's a level of awareness and being uh, being knowledgeable about the situations where you could get low yeah and i think Let's talk about that for a second, because I would say there's two broad classes of patients when it comes to hypoglycemia. Um, one, there's the patient that wants their A1C to be 5.5, and they you know, say they don't mind being low, and they have their blood sugars be 60, 70 all the time. Um, and yes, those patients' A1C is quote-unquote good, so their risk of kind of long-term complications is low. Um, but they are at extremely high risk of a bad low. And those patients are probably the patients that make me the most nervous. And they're the ones that maybe they're kind of the hardest to treat to try to convince them that, hey, look, I know you were told when you were diagnosed that you have to keep your blood sugars in a normal range to avoid eye and kidney disease. But you are so close to a car accident or passing out a seizure or one of these events that can kill you. And that psyche is extremely difficult to break. Terribly to break. And you know what? Um, a lot of these patients, uh, they don't have any complications, yeah. but they've had diabetes a long time. And I've learned from you that after 10 years of type 1, you, lo you lose any glucagon response to hypoglycemia. Mm -hmm. And Jeremy, uh, you were young and not even born yet, but 
um, before the days of CGM, I had several patients like that, and probably one or two a year passed away, found in their apartment, um, and luckily and happy to say now that it hasn't happened in quite a while, thanks yeah. to modern technology. So it is scary, yeah. um, and you're right. So what's the other category? So the other category is the complete opposite. A patient that had a bad low experience at, at some point, just like you mentioned, um, maybe they had a seizure, maybe just something that scared them, and they don't want to have a blood sugar south of 250 ever. They just want their blood sugars you know, to be high all the time, and you have to work with them gradually to get confidence in their CGM or their pumps or whatever to bring their blood sugars down. Um, so you can see with you know, hypoglycemia, again, that people have completely different ideas about it. Some people actually almost prefer it, oddly, um, because they think that that's a better place to be. And some people are so terrified of it um, that they want their blood sugars to be so high all the time. And then there's everything in between. Yeah. And luckily, I think most People are in between. Mm -hmm. We do have these extremes, but I still remember this one patient of mine. He was a woodworker, and he passed out at a rock concert and was so freaking embarrassed. Honest to God, Jeremy, he, he didn't feel comfortable below 250. Mm -hmm. I tried and tried, and he eventually left my practice uh, and at UCSD, and uh, hopefully he's okay. But it, it really messes with people, and it could cause such a bad experience. I can't blame them for yeah. being scared death. I had, you know, a patient just like that, actually a nurse, a diabetes nurse, and she knew, you know, everything that needed to be done, but had a seizure, blood sugars 300 all the time, um, actually had her work with Bill too, and got her on a hybrid closed loop system and just started with a really high target. It was actually on the tandem initially, kept it in exercise mode the whole time. So targeting blood sugars 160 or so, and then just kind of working with her to slowly trust lower blood sugars. And she is doing a lot better. So you can, you know, improve these things. Um, it just takes a lot of time and um, time. Yeah. On the other end of the spectrum, I sent Bill a patient who was fearful of highs, just like your first group. And Bill is such a good clinical psychologist. He would go out to breakfast and he would eat a bagel with her, half a bagel, and walk her through the bolusing. Her CGM was right there, so she felt comfortable eating something and bolusing correctly for it. Of course, Bill wanted the free yeah, bagel. Yeah, bagel, I was going to say. That's, that's <laughs> you know, like... No, it's true, but he actually has done that several times with the same patient, and that patient is doing better. So, oh. uh, you know, I would say for some of you out there that that are thinking that you are one of these two groups, you know, seek out help. Yeah. Uh, Bill Polanski, I got a cell number. I'll give it at the end of the, <laughs> and also his partner, Susan Guzman. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So how common, you know, we talk about that this is common, but Steve and I actually, you know, we published a couple articles where we got our hands on this very large electronical, electronic medical record database of 30,000 type ones in the country and kind of analyzed all these different things. And one thing we looked at is how common is a severe hypoglycemic event. And what we found is in people with type one diabetes, about 5% of patients in a given year, so one out of 20 type ones, will go to the hospital or the emergency room with a hypoglycemic event each year. So those are the most severe, right? The ones that make you have to go to the ER or the hospital. And 5% of type 1s every year, I mean, that's that's pretty high. Yeah, and, and this database that you're talking about was really the run-of-the-mill type 1s with any type of uh, private insurance. And mm -hmm. so the database is very good. And I think one of the the two other important things that we should talk about is, I'll let you do it because uh, you did most of the writing, 
is what what percent of patients ended up with an A1C at goal less than seven? This was not that long ago. But the other thing that that I'll mention is you showed a graph. Well, we showed a graph. I'm on the paper. Thanks. Mm -hmm. uh, that when the A1C gets high, your risk for hypo goes up. Yeah. And that surprises doctors. And why is that? Yeah, we used to always think that, you know, hypoglycemia was only a problem when you got your A1C low. That you, people wanted their A1C six and a half, six, five and a half. And we actually showed that, yes, those people with very low A1Cs had a high risk of hypoglycemia, but also the patients with A1Cs of 10, 11, et cetera. And we think the reason for that is that if your A1C is 10, 11, you're probably taking insulin sporadically or maybe don't have the, the doses quite right. You're fluctuating a lot. And a, a bad hypo has nothing to do with your A1C, which is your average blood sugar. It has to do with that one event where you take too much insulin. So my take from all of that is there's no A1C that makes you safe from a severe hypo. And I think a lot of clinicians will say, oh, that guy's got an A1C of 10. He doesn't need glucagon. We don't need to talk about hypoglycemia. No, in everybody on insulin, um, you need to be having this conversation, have glucagon, et cetera. So that was really kind of eye-opening. Yeah, and that's the beauty of the CGM downloads where you have time in range, but also very importantly, time below range. And that gives you the percent of time that people are below 70 and 55. So those metrics are so much more important on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. And then you asked real quick, so it was only about 20% of type 1s that got their A1C below 7. The average A1C in the whole group was about 8.2 or so. Um, and again, these are people that have insurance, they're seeing physicians. Um, they're not seeing us. They're not seeing us. And not me, for sure. Maybe you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyways, 5% of type 1s going to the ER, not great. So what are the risk factors? Well, I mentioned hypoglycemia in itself is a risk factor. And if somebody is having a lot of lows, chances are they, they are more prone to have a bad low. So what is too much hypoglycemia? Well, we have this, this metric for CGM called time below range, which is the time people spend below a blood sugar of 70. And our official recommendation is to keep that number below 4%, 4% of the time, which is actually an hour a day, which to me is actually way too much. If you're having 4% time below range, um, an hour a day that you're low, I guess officially you're, you're doing well, but I still think that that's too much. I don't know. What do you think? No, I agree with you. Yeah. You know, um, when you look at your own download, everybody should that wears a CGM. So if you download it for a month, just to explain this clearly, uh, that if it says 4%, that means on average you are below 70 and you could be well below 70 one hour a day. Like you could be three hours one day and none the next two days. But I think one hour a day is a lot. Mm -hmm. And some people can ride around 65 and not have any symptoms. So I, I agree with you. I think it is too much. Yeah. So hypoglycemia itself is a risk factor. We talked about patients that like to ride low, as we, we say, that, that they just kind of hover around hypoglycemia. Were you like that for a while? No. Well, I always thought that because you're always were sipping cokes, not anymore. Well, this was I think before I had a CGM, right? And I, I, I did I think not like it, but I knew, you know, because I was just doing finger sticks that if my blood sugars were low, I would get symptoms, and it was just a way of kind of knowing where my blood sugar was. So it wasn't that I was striving for like a perfect A one C. It was just that like maybe it was a time I didn't have to test. Um, you know, it was like a guardrail for you. You knew that you were not super, high. super high. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. Thanks. I'm off the hook. Well, no, I was just curious. <laughs> uh, um, so what else is a risk factor? Your age and duration of diabetes. So unfortunately, as people get older and they've oh, had shit. diabetes for longer, 
um, you just you lose some of your fight back to hypoglycemia. So this was particularly an issue like when Medicare wasn't covering CGM. And the diabetes, you know, community was up in arms about how can you right. take this population that it's at the highest risk and not offer them this technology. And thankfully, that's changed. Um, and then we mentioned, you know, A1C is actually not a good, you know, indicator of your risk of hypoglycemia. So don't feel um, kind of safe no matter what your A1C is. So the next thing is is how to prevent hypoglycemia, and then we can talk about how to um, treat it. So. We don't want to belabor it, but get a continuous glucose monitor. And speaking of Medicare, they've now indicated it for anybody that is taking any insulin for essentially any reason. So it used to be you had to take uh, like like multiple shots a day uh, for meals. Now it can be if you're just taking one shot, you know, some basal insulin if you have type 2 diabetes. So it's getting... um, to be more available for more people. And I think our government, uh, or even the payers, our insurance companies, realize that for every hypoglycemia visit to the ER that is avoided, they save so much money. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're, hopefully they're thinking about our lives too. But I think people are realizing how important CGM is. And I think we're excited now they give it to type 2s on basal only. But I think there will be a time when it'll be available to any person with diabetes. Mm-hmm. And then you got to set the alarms right. And so I have my um, <laughs> my low alert set at 80. But if you're somebody that, you know, has had some severe lows before, you might want to set it at 90 or even 100. So you're just aware, um, you know, a little bit sooner of a, of a pending low. I really don't like when I see patients in clinic and they don't have a low alarm and they just rely on the 55 mm-hmm. to wake them up. And by then you're already in a dangerous place. So trust me, I don't like waking up at all for any reason, Um, but I'd rather wake up with my alarm going off at 80 than 55 or not at all. Yeah, and you can change that at different times. Mm -hmm. And I want to recommend to people that um, you go in, a lot of times you can change the sound. So it's not as annoying as the factory set sounds. But the other thing I want to mention that's more important is this thing called lag time. When your blood sugar is dropping, you know, remember that we're measuring glucose in the subcutaneous tissue, that it takes 10 to 15 minutes for to catch up to what you really are in your circulation that affects the brain. So if you have, let's say, a diagonal down or whatever. But I think it's important to say that that's really important when your blood sugars are changing quickly. You know, if it's if your blood sugar is flat, like you really don't have to worry about this, this right. lag time. But it, right. you were about to say, if you're really plummeting, Sorry. Yeah, that's all right. You can interrupt me anytime you want. <laughs> yeah, if you have a diagonal arrow down, mm-hmm. continue where I was, or or straight down, that means you're changing, you know, five to ten milligrams per deciliter per minute. And even though your CGM may read sixty, you might be forty-five, depending on how fast it's dropping. So mm-hmm. you're right. If you could trend arrow straight across, you're not going to have to worry about lag time, and that's important because the lag time is the opposite direction going up, but that's not as dangerous as on the lag time when you're dropping. And yeah. when we were doing finger sticks alone, we had no clue what direction your blood sugar was going. Yeah. And then the other thing is set up the follow feature if you have a device that does that. And so Steve follows my blood sugar um, and we kind of have a code or rule that, you know, you have it set so every time I go below 55, you're notified. And if it's flat or if it's coming back up, you'll leave me alone. But if it's, if it's going down, you'll call me, whatever. Um, I don't know, maybe a couple months ago, I got a call from your girlfriend that your blood sugar was low and you weren't responding and she was out of town. So I got in my car and was on my way to your house. And then you just called me and said, oh, sorry. I was like, I don't know, 
in the other room. I was low, man. (laughs) (laughs) Don't bug me. I was getting some juice. You know what? You're right. And I think um, that other time I was riding my bike in Coronado Island. Yeah. You called me. I answered the phone, you know, because I saw it was you. And then I hit a parked car. No, I didn't. (laughs) I was low. And I, you know, you know me, I'm not as symptomatic as as, uh, I was when I was first diagnosed. Right. So the CGM, what we're saying, can notify you. It can notify people around you. So even, you know, if you're sleeping with a partner or somebody else, it can notify them, wake them up. And then the follow feature is it can notify somebody in a different state. So make sure you're getting all the different benefits of hypoglycemia kind of protection out of your CGM. What do you think about the the, the hypoglycemia-trained animals that pick up hypo in their owners? Yeah, I, I think, I don't know. I think the CGMs are better, but I think if for some reason somebody can't use a CGM or whatever, then they do seem to be effective. I have heard that people, you know, it's if you treat them more like a, a pet and not a service animal, they lose their kind of ability to, to do that. So I've seen I'm seeing them less and less. I read the TCYD conferences. There used to be at least a couple kind of hypo dogs. Yeah, I haven't seen one in a while. Well, you know what? I I agree with you. They're not a replacement, and I think mm-hmm. they could be addition too. Yeah, I I really don't. I think you know now that CGMs are more accessible, they're they work better. If you if you like animals, you want to bring your animal on the plane and find a good excuse. Yeah, go for it. No, yeah, they, apparently <laughs> they kidding. cannot ask you what the the, the condition is. Just as a service animal, and then you're good. No, I, if it helps people, go for it. Yeah. So CGM, of course, and then if you are on insulin, these hybrid closed-loop systems have been shown to reduce hypoglycemia. And the way they do that, I think you guys know, is that if your blood sugars are going low, it can shut off the insulin. So um, if you're on a pump, you're basically on one of these systems. But if you are having recurrent hypoglycemia, you're above that 4% time below range, or you've had a bad hypo, Definitely a strong indication to get on one of these systems um, because they absolutely can help. Yes, yeah, it's, it's it's the way of the future for yeah. type ones and and a good subset of type twos on insulin. And if you're a type two, especially if you're having recurrent hypos, talking to a provider about how can we adjust my regimen to with the, the the specific goal of avoiding hypoglycemia. I honestly don't think there's really many places to use sulfonylureas anymore in type 2 diabetes. This is like glipiride, glimepiride, these medications. We have so many different options. You can probably come off of those. And maybe if you're not using a GLP-1 or actually 2 like the point is you can maybe rearrange things to limit insulin or these other drugs that might be causing hypoglycemia. Yeah, they, they do have one advantage. They cost pennies a pill. Yeah. And so for people with access problems, uh, they're still used quite a bit, and especially around the world. And same with metformin, you know, it's generic. So I agree with you, Jeremy. If if you could rearrange someone's schedule to get off of them, it reduces your risk for hypo. Yeah. Because not too many other diabetes uh, pills, and even some of the all the injectables, do not cause hypo. So take away that risk. Now, the number one thing I see in terms of how to prevent hypos is that hypos usually come after a high blood sugar that somebody's blood sugar will go high and then they'll take insulin and go low. So a lot of the time people with diabetes will develop this kind of pattern where they'll say, well, I'm worried about going low with eating, so I'm not going to take my insulin before I eat. And then they'll actually go high and then they'll take a big slug of like a rage bolus or correction bolus and then go low. And they can get stuck in that pattern. And the way to avoid that is actually taking your insulin and the kind of correct amount, whatever that is, before you eat to avoid that high in the first place. 
So paradoxically, the way to avoid lows is actually taking insulin, actually more insulin before you eat. And that's hard for people to kind of get their head around sometimes, but it's so important. Yeah, I would say this. I had a patient yesterday in clinic who said that she doesn't know how much she's going to eat. I said, well, I, I do what you suggested. Take about half your usual dose early. 20 minutes before, 30 minutes. And of course, it depends on your blood sugar. Your blood sugar is 220. You should take it a lot longer before. And then once you see what you've eaten, you can take the rest. We should mention a Frezza, uh, which I prescribed for this woman, which such a rapid onset, you take it at the time of eating. Mm-hmm. So, and then we're not going to go into all these different special situations, but we've done whole videos on exercise. That's a whole different topic on how to avoid lows there. Alcohol, another common reason, um, just, you know, things to be careful about when you're sleeping, certain medications that might make, you know, people prone or like beta blockers, for example, not being able to feel your lows as much. So, um, but really the prevention comes down to a lot of using the technology and being smart about kind of the timing of your insulin is so important. And so then we close out on how to treat. Well, guess what? Still old-fashioned carbs are like the way to go initially. And we always say that the liquids are a little bit faster and drinking some juice or soda or whatever. Um, For me um, and you, we like these little apple juices that we keep by our bed Mm -hmm. because the, the, the kind of the worst lows that people tend to get are at night. Um, when you wake up, you're confused, you can easily get out of bed, eat everything in sight and your blood sugars are 400. Um, and what a pain that is. So you and I just tell each other, well, you can just stay in bed and just drink that juice and just chill out for a second. You'll be okay. Um, and, many and that's times, so hard to do. It is hard to do. And yeah. many times I've drink one juice and I think my juices, I got away from the Martinelli's apple juice cause they were too many calories per grenade yeah. as we called it but uh, it's 120 calories treetop you know it's yeah. pretty good and um i almost feel like i want to drink the second one and yeah every time i do i go too high yeah but luckily i jeremy i can't tell you how many times i used to go to the fridge and could not stop mm-hmm. eating cookies trick cereal with milk leftover milk put more tricks in and you, you just tell butter. yourself you're like oh, i need it my blood sugar is low yeah and then of I'll, course you're like i'll level out at 99 but yeah. no, you go to 450. Yeah, For so me, it's times. always Ritz crackers, sharp cheddar, tulip milk cheese with peanut butter. <laughs> Slowest absorption. In like a rotation. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the other thing is like I, I every once in a while I'll go on Amazon and buy like eight um, like kind of those bigger cartons of the glucose tabs. And I put them everywhere. I have them a uh, container. What would you call that? A little... Container. container, yeah. One in my car, Tube. one in my work bag. And not the tubes, the ones that hold like 100. Oh, yeah. yeah. The, the whole jar. So, yeah. So Plastic uh, jar. In my work bag, my car, by my bed, everywhere. And I like glucose tabs because I don't like glucose tabs, meaning I never would just snack on them. I never eat them. I never have any desire to reach in and have a glucose tab. But they're great to have around. And it's easy to do is kind of this one time go on Amazon, spend 40 bucks and get like a, a crap ton of them. I know if you had Skittles, which are good for treating lows, mm-hmm. your kids would eat them. Yeah. <laughs> and I would eat them too. Um, so then 
having carbs around. We talked about some of our favorite low things, which you should not do, which is peanut butter. And then glucagon. So there's been, everybody needs glucagon. And we've talked about this a lot, but there's several new glucagon formulations. There's the Gvoke pen um, by Xeris, uh, which is kind of like an EpiPen. It's pre-mixed. You don't see the needle. You just push it down on your skin. It's an auto-injector. Very easy to use. Like, yeah. Stable at room temperature for two years. Great option. The other is Baximi, which is actually a nasal spray. Um, so the important thing is have some glucagon, know where it is, and show your friends or family where it is and how to use it. And now that with these new formulations, they're very, very easy for non-medical personnel to use. Um, the older models that we had, models, if you will, you actually had to mix it with a violent syringe, and it was a huge needle. Like, actually, it was really painful and hard to do. So these new formulations, ask your provider about it. Know where it is. Um, anything to say about yeah, that? Yeah, I would just say, if you have one of these older ones, make sure that it's not expired. Mm-hmm. And then get a newer one, because uh, a lot of times, someone that's going to help you is not medically oriented. They haven't had diabetes. They're unfamiliar with syringes. And the old erector sets, they save people, but they're so difficult to use. And also, uh, if you watch our video that we did for healthcare professionals, it, you know, it can take time for someone to figure it out, read the instructions. And at that time, you could be losing brain cells. And in one of our upcoming podcasts, we're going to be talking about how low is low. Yeah. So keep an eye out for that one as well. The other thing we should mention is what you did with your example. You can give glucagon to yourself. Mm-hmm. If you feel like you can't keep up with the rate of drop of your blood sugar for any reason, give yourself glucagon, either Baximi or the Gvoke Hypopen. I've done that twice myself. Mm. And in the future, uh, just like a recent publication, uh, that uh, we're going to have mini-dose glucagon to treat hypo. And that'll be awesome. And we've been talking about this because Gvoke makes their pen, Mm -hmm. but they also have a vial and syringe of glucagon. So people have started playing around with little mini doses, a unit or two, you know, take before exercise or whatever. So not just for the severe like seizure situation, but can we use glucagon as little taps um, to help with with kind of like avoiding lows, preventing exercise induced hypo, like yeah. our good friend Mike Rydell mm-hmm. published, who also has type one from Toronto, and also if treating lows. Mm-hmm. So you wouldn't even have to worry about eating a jar of peanut butter yeah, like exactly. you normally do. I know. Eating that on a treadmill is tough. Um, <laughs> but then the very last thing is, yes, then eventually we're going to be putting glucagon in, in pumps too. And, you know, there's one company, Islet, that's working on this bihormonal pancreas, insulin and glucagon. Um, and they might even have a glucagon-only mode for people with just constant lows. It's not people with diabetes, but other things. So glucagons, there's a lot going on in that world. So, you know, kind of stay tuned. But I think in wrapping it up, we've covered a lot of ground. This is common. It happens to you and me. We told some of our war stories, um, but there are ways to, you just need to be prepared, have the technology, making sure that, you know, it's working, have carbs around, have glucagon around. Um, and that's really the best that you can do. And knock on wood, you know, you and I have stayed safe because of a lot of these things. But if something does go wrong, um, you know, you just got to regroup, kind of reload your glucose tabs. I'm sure you did the next day and just, you know, continue yeah. to be prepared. Yeah. And just, you know, remember that there's always a first time. And if you're, if you have any, uh, if you're driving a lot, you're working around heavy machinery, it's always important to keep an eye on your blood sugar. Hopefully you have a CGM and prevent those lows. And then also tell your coworkers too, so that they can administer glucagon if they need to. Yeah. 
Well, with that, I'm going to go have another Slim Jim, I think. And, um, <laughs> and then we can go see you guys Thank- the, or listen to you guys in the next one. Thanks, Jeremy. That was really a good podcast. Yeah. All right, buddy. Talk All to right. you soon. Bye. Bye.